Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news on China with our free email newsletter, our app, and our website. While you're there, check out the growing stable of podcasts in the Seneca Network, too, like our newest show, the China Econ Talk Podcast with Jordan Schneider. SubChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the trade war to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in southern Xinjiang. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am at the Asia Society today to speak with Danny Russell, who, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, was Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs during the second Obama administration. He is currently Vice President of the ASPI, the Asia Society Policy Institute, and during the first Obama administration, he was on loan from state to the National Security Council, where he served as Senior Director for Asian Affairs in the White House. Danny, who is a career diplomat, was really the principal architect of the pivot, or as it was later rebranded, the rebalancing. We'll chat about his time at the White House and at the State Department, about the troubling shifts that happened in China on his watch, as it were, uh, but also about the significant accomplishments of those years. And we will, of course, talk about the current state and disturbing direction of the bilateral relationship during the current uh, administration. Danny Russell, welcome to Seneca. We are delighted to have you on at last. Thank you, Kaiser. I'm very happy to be here. Appreciate that nice introduction. I will make one reclama, which is whenever someone refers to me as the architect of the rebalance, I have to stop them and admit that I was really only the plumbing subcontractor. Oh. Obama was the architect. Okay, okay. So I'm, I'll, I'll go back in and fill that in as plumbing subcontractor. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we are delighted that you could be here. Uh, on a previous show, I may have unthinkingly given credit for the pivot or blame to it, um, blame, blame for it, depending, I suppose, on, on, on your perspective, to Kurt Campbell, uh, who served as Assistant Secretary before you. Uh, but hey, Kurt did actually write a book called The Pivot, and I just couldn't resist the, the pun, the author of The Pivot, right? Anyway, uh, apologies for that. Let's let's jump in and, and talk about your signature policy for East Asia. Uh, you characterized it as a strategy and uh, as we were exchanging emails, setting up this conversation, you mentioned that you took, I don't know if it was exception, but, you know, you pushed back a little bit on the way that Chaz Freeman, uh, who we had interviewed a couple of months back, uh, didn't seem to think that it quite rose to the level of a strategy. He was critical of it, too, for having too much of a defense component in it and was unsurprised at the way it was received in, in Beijing, basically as containment by another name. Do you think he mischaracterized it? Well, it was a strategy? Well, it clearly was a strategy, and mm -hmm. it was a strategy that was developed with U.S. interests very much in mind in response to what was a combination of very challenging circumstances that the incoming Obama administration faced. You know, if you jump into the Wayback Machine and, you know, set the dial on January 21st, 2009, which was the day that I was loaned to the White House, to the NSC, uh, the U.S. was still struggling with this uh, catastrophic economic setback, Absolutely. major recession, high risk of a depression. And we also had inherited a relationship with various countries in Asia that were under considerable strain. Japan was beside itself over the decision by the Bush administration to 
waive the state sponsor of terrorism uh, designation. designation that North Korea was, had been under. There had been tremendous tensions and difficulties between the Bush administration and the Nomohyun administration. The global war on terror was sort of the be-all and the end-all for the U.S. government in that period. And that meant that most of the Asian partners felt that they were either neglected or being squeezed to be with us or be against us, as President Bush famously said. So we faced a lot of challenges. And what was crystal clear to me from essentially the first day I set foot in the National Security Council was that our new Pacific president, Barack Obama at that point, understood intellectually and understood viscerally that America's economic development, that America's security interests, that America's future was inextricably linked to the Asia-Pacific region, which was clearly the driver of global growth. And because the U.S. is a Pacific nation, it mattered greatly to the United States how the East Asia and the Pacific region uh, developed in the 21st century. And he, he believed with some passion that U.S. interests dictated that we be engaged, involved, activist uh, in trying to shape and promote uh, norms in the region and mm. relationships with regional partners that would serve the best interests of the United States and would contribute to regional growth and stability. And this is why you give him credit, really, as the author of The Pivot. Absolutely. And did he codify it as such? Did he actually uh, go to the point of saying, uh, and and this taken together constitutes uh, my strategy, my approach to, to the Pacific region? He embedded it in his advocacy right. for an open economic system. He embedded it in his decisions to support smart development of U.S. national power and the military budget. He embedded it in his commitment to stand up for the rule of law and for universal rights and so on. It was in the course of the first year or so that I would say that his team, of which I was one, and Kurt, working under uh, then-Secretary Hillary Clinton, was another important member, uh, that we began to put together, along with Jeff Bader, who was my mentor, and under Tom Donilon, who Mm -hmm. soon became the National Security Advisor, a strategy that composed of a couple of important elements— I'd say first on the list, Kaiser, was strengthening and modernizing America's alliances, our security partnerships with Japan, South Korea. Right, Australia, Australia, but also at the time Thailand and uh, the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And with countries who weren't treaty allies per se, like New Zealand or like Singapore, but increasingly with countries that had never been willing to entertain much in the way of security cooperation with the United States, like India or like uh, Vietnam. Uh, We worked hard at uh, developing partnerships, developing uh, more interoperability, cooperating, consulting. We focused not on acquiring bases, but on access, access in support of common interests, everything from disaster response 
uh, to maritime security and protecting sea lanes and so on. And so that, that was one important component of it, uh, but it was by no means uh, the only, uh, let alone uh, the most important component of what we were working on. I think that institution building uh, was a hugely important element to the rebalance strategy. What do you mean by institution building? What, what specifically are we talking about? Um, things like TPP? or No, before we got to TPP, we discussed with the president the pros and the cons of America signing the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation with ASEAN mm-hmm. and not only beginning a regular uh, high-level dialogue with the 10 Southeast Asian ASEAN countries, but also formally joining the East Asia Summit. This was an idea that had been knocking around. Kevin Rudd, when he was Prime Minister of Australia, had in whose office suggested we're sitting. <laughs> it. Exactly. And so the debate early on in the administration was over the practicality of the President of the United States committing to attend these meetings on an annual basis, committing to be a participant in a, in a new aspect of regional uh, security, the East Asia Summit. And I'll admit now I had some reservations. One of the points I tried to make was that this is not a one-off decision. If the president were to decide that the U.S. was going to join the East Asia Summit, he was committing himself to go every year. It's a long distance. It's a lot of time. The meetings can be mind-numbingly uh, mundane <laughs> and kind of make you want to chew your ankle off to escape. But I recognized how important it would be. I just wanted to make sure that because the time of the president of the United States is arguably the most precious commodity on the planet, that the president and everybody understood sort of what was in it for us. And in the end, it was Obama himself who made the decision. That he wanted in. He was going to go every year chewing the ankle off or not, right? Well, what he said was if this project, the development and the strengthening of regional norms and rules of good regional governance, if this is important to us, then we can't simply hang back until the Asians themselves perfect uh, the organization. We have to roll up our sleeves, get in there, and get to work. Our active participation, uh, if we're constructive and if we're smart, will make this a better institution. And so, yes, I'm going to go. Yes, I think this is important to do. Yes, I recognize that it's a, it's a long-term commitment. But you mentioned TPP. TPP gets at the economic component of the rebalance strategy, which is a, a very, very significant one. Um, I mean, TPP is well known. Uh, I think it was a eminently worthwhile economic agreement. It was even more valuable as a strategic move. But it wasn't the only piece of our economic engagement. The Chorus Free Trade Agreement, which has just been tweaked a bit by the Trump administration. (laughs) I read Woodward's book. I mean, it seems to have been an obsession for him. Well, uh, we may have Gary Cohn to thank for the fact that uh, Chorus has lived that. to right. fight another day. Yeah. Um, but we had other th- other initiatives, The uh, something we called the E3, which was sort of TPP for dummies. It was the uh, economic 
standards and some of the trade components of TPP that we were able to offer to countries who weren't ready to join TPP negotiations. But another important dimension of that was the work that Obama and the Obama team did on entrepreneurship, Mm. on innovation, on outreach to youth. And look, I mean, that for many, many people in Asia is arguably the most attractive feature of the United States. And we hosted some entrepreneurship summits. We engaged uh, widely across uh, the region. So economics and trade was every bit as important to the rebalance as was the alliance and the security piece or the institution piece. There, there were other pieces of it too. You know, you had a people-to-people piece to it. You had sort of very values big. commitment, um, all these things. But in, in a talk you gave in Ann Arbor earlier this year, you were saying of the pivot, we were deliberate in developing an Asia-Pacific rebalance strategy with a China component to it. Yeah. Well, Not I, a China strategy with an Asia-Pacific component to that. Um, And I know, I think I I take you at your word, from the very beginning, the Obama White House and the State Department emphasized this wasn't about China, and it was first and foremost an economic strategy, not a security-focused strategy. It also had, like I said, you know, these other components to it, the entrepreneurship component to it, the people-to-people component to it, uh, these institutional building pieces to it. But even these taken together, if you look at them sort of out Beijing's window, you can sort of see, ah, what what is common to all of these is that they all exclude China. They all seem to, to be for all the, the countries except for China. And it's hard for me to imagine that from Beijing, it wouldn't have looked like anything less than sort of the everyone but China club. Well, look, first of all, the Chinese make a, an art form out of celebrating their victimhood. Uh, there's sure. But oh, in this case, just putting all that aside, just looking at it, what what would it look like to you from, from out Beijing's windows, stripping away uh, all of that resentment of, of, of a century? What, what does it look like to you? I mean, well, you- my, my point is that there are components in the Chinese system that are either going to believe or are going to argue that everything and anything that the United States does is reducible to some sort of malevolent containment strategy. But setting that aside, I'd make two big points, I guess. Number one, it isn't accurate to suggest that our initiatives were uh, consistently exclusive of China. Whether it was creating a, a space for the PLA Navy to participate in RIMPAC, sure. or whether it was the interaction with China that we had in the institutions that we were supporting and championing, including APAC, including the East Asia Summit. In a host of other contexts, we dealt with and included China. What Mike Froman and I used to say about the question we were asked constantly regarding TPP, which is, can China join? And in fact, we were asked by none other than China. Sure. When we talked to various counterparts, can China join? We used to say, hey, the world would be a better place if uh, China could meet the standards that are required of prospective TPP members. We, we, so the question isn't, is China excluded? That's starting from a false premise. The question is, can China make the adjustments, meet the standards that would enable it to participate in that kind of an agreement? You didn't think any of the standards were non-starters for China? 
Well, it, it was uh, clearly going to be a long right. and hard uh, s- stretch for China to, to get there. But the point wasn't that we were trying to develop something that excluded China. The point was that we were trying to set standards that China, importantly, could and should aspire to. But I think that the bigger rebuttal piece is the extent to which the Obama administration deliberately, actively, uh, and I think strategically, sought to engage China directly. Absolutely. And there are some really important areas, and I think there were some important institutions and and mechanisms uh, that we developed to try to promote cooperation. Now, our starting point, Kaiser, was that we had no illusions. We understood fully that there are significant areas of difference and significant areas of competition between the United States and China. We never tried to paper those over. We never tried to put on rose-colored glasses. But what we did try to do were two things. Number one, to actively seek practical and meaningful areas of cooperation, areas that served the best interests of both the United States citizens and Chinese citizens, the region, the world, areas where cooperation between the U.S. and China was possible and could make a big difference. And secondly, we tried to ensure that in the areas where we had real differences, Number one, we had lines of communication so that we could explain what our objections were and what our objectives were. We sought to ensure that those differences were, to the extent possible, reconciled. And where they couldn't be reconciled, that at least uh, they could be reduced Mm. to bring the temperature and the friction down. And where, frankly, we couldn't actually meaningfully reduce the friction because we had such irreconcilable uh, differences. We worked on finding responsible ways to manage those differences to prevent the pot from boiling over. And I think as a result, we early on put something of a floor under the U.S.-China relationship that could tolerate not inconsiderable amount of stress without busting up the whole relationship, without running the risk of some sort of conflict. I certainly can't fault it in design. And let's leave aside for now how Beijing viewed things. But even within the Beltway, even within the policymaking community, I feel like it wasn't sold particularly well. It wasn't packaged or marketed well. A lot of people came away with a conclusion not too far away from Beijing's. They saw a military component that was quite heavy. I mean, and we, we, we spoke on the phone yesterday. I think you, you had an excellent explanation for why that might have been the case. The, a lot of the, the, the parts that I think were uh, very laudable to the rebalance strategy happened just not to have been as visible. Was it a marketing problem? What was, or were there structural problems? Or was it simply overtaken by events? What do you think went wrong in the in the communication? I mean, if if you even do you accept that 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 something went wrong in the communication of it? Uh, well, if <laughs> if if we're in uh, the latter part of 2018, and if you're representing a significant component of China expertise that 
views it as a, as uh, inadequate or as a failure, then uh, sure that that is an important clue. But the the long and the short of it is that I was certainly not in the business of of selling this to the public although I understood and contributed to the effort to explain what we were doing and why and why it was important, etc. We, we were out to engineer results, real results that mattered. And so the, in just say the security realm, one of the projects that we undertook in the Obama administration was an effort to bring China into compliance with conventional maritime law and to deal with the risk of an unplanned encounter at sea. My colleagues in the Pentagon over time were able to get the Chinese military, the PLA, to sit down with them. This was an, an initiative and an objective that Obama himself supported and, and presented to uh, the Chinese leadership. And ultimately, we were able successfully to negotiate an agreement covering maritime interaction. We had a follow-on agreement regarding aircraft. We made some real headway in a practical and in a valuable manner. The more well-known examples of success in the U.S.-China uh, engagement were things like the bilateral climate change agreement. Absolutely. I mean, that is, Kaiser, a, a minor miracle. Absolutely, it was. And it didn't... Especially it, after Copenhagen? Yeah, I mean, that you could come around and, yeah, it was 2014 that you announced that. Is that correct? Sounds right. So what we were... What we were able to do was to first understand and then uh, find ways to harness what China held important, which was uh, dealing with the urgent environmental concerns that were generating instability within Chinese society, the pollution and their concern about emission of greenhouse gases was really more connected to domestic security and stability than it was to, uh, you know, the fate of planet Earth. At least that was my opinion. But by coupling what China itself wanted to do with an opportunity to link arms with the United States to come up with something that would have a massive global impact that ultimately proved to be the the seed around which the Paris Climate Accord mm -hmm. grew, we demonstrated to the Chinese that they could acquire great kudos and status and stature and international eyes. They could transform themselves from the opprobrium of being the world's largest emitter to becoming a leader along with the United States in this global venture. And I thought that at the time in doing so, we were coaxing the Chinese into a pattern of behavior that was far more in keeping with what the United States hoped to see in terms of uh, global responsibility. Right. It was, a, I think, a really important accomplishment. Uh, a not minor accomplishment. miracle. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was but there are others. I mean, and we'll go through the real, the highlight reel in a little bit. Okay. Uh, I want to do a little more sort of stage setting and, and, and figure out. 
uh, and and talk also about some of the conceptual pieces of the pivot. One of the things that you mentioned was a values component to it. Unpack that a bit for us. I mean, it's when you, we get into territory like this uh, that Beijing's hackles tend to go up. Any engagements with Chinese civil society outside of the very very safe stuff, maybe environmental groups, for example becomes threatening. I mean, it's not unlike what you've seen in Putin's Russia, where engagement with civil society groups is seen as directly threatening somehow to the authority of the authoritarian state. They start thinking color revolutions and George Soros and Arab Springs and and ultimately regime change, right? They see, we've, we've, we've noted this, coordination where there isn't coordination, perhaps. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no coincidences. They don't believe in them. They impute all sorts of motives that aren't you know, necessarily there. And they're always ready to come back at you with sort of the whataboutism or the, to, to exhort those who, who live in glass houses to be careful about their stone throwing. So what was the values component of the rebalancing and, and how did you try to execute on that and how thorny was that as, as a, an issue? Well, we made it clear in all of our interactions with uh, less or non-democratic partners uh, why and to what extent it was important uh, to the United States uh, to see progress in terms of respect for the rights of that country's citizens, uh, f- respect f- and adherence to universal, not local, principles of, uh, of human rights and the rule of law. And we tried to do it in a way that was pragmatic and not merely sermonizing and not merely sanctimonious grandstanding. My favorite line from the Oslo speech is, well, I know that engaging with repressive regimes lacks the satisfying purity of indignation. And I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's something that, uh, that Obama was great with, just not, not sort of basking in, in righteous indignation. And so I think, yeah, that's... So, you know, it's, it's no easy matter, though, to make uh, the case. And what among the things that we tried to do was to show the connection between a knowledge-based uh, and a knowledge-embracing society and the kind of innovation and wealth generation that the United States was displaying from Silicon Valley to, um, you know, MIT. And we tried to show that the interest that even a, uh, you know, a young Malaysian or a young Thai or a young Chinese has in good governance, in dependable judiciary, in the rule of law, isn't a matter of ideology. It's not an abstraction, but it's a simple point. If you can, a la Sergey Brin or Mark Zuckerberg or or Bill Gates, you can invent something, an app, uh, an algorithm, a product. If you can invent something of value and build it out, you want the protection that comes from a system in which, you know, the son-in-law of the party secretary can't arbitrarily decide that he's now a 51% shareholder in your company. You want the certainty that comes from knowledge that contracts will be respected and enforced. And if they're not, then there's a judicial avenue open to you to seek redress. So the push for things like uh, strong institutions, and uh, clean government, and the rule of law doesn't come from the pulpit. 
it comes from self-interest. And we, we developed programs and we ensured that the messages that the president, the vice president, secretary of state, others were putting forward were couched in terms that really made sense to the citizens at the same time that we made an effort to ensure that the leadership, that the government, understood that the failure to abide by or to respect international law and universal rights came at a cost, that it would impede the ability of the Obama administration to develop the bilateral relationship in the direction we wanted to go to increase our trade and our cooperation along various lines. Now, sometimes we just stated the obvious, that there's no way on earth that Congress will go along with this initiative or this next step that you're asking for in trade terms, for example, as long as political prisoners are being uh, incarcerated and harassed, as long as you won't allow uh, freedom of worship and freedom of expression. But we also tried to uh, go beyond that by reaching out directly, not to radical elements in society, but particularly to young people. And so a program like Obama's Young Southeast Asia Leadership Initiative that has brought together now over the years uh, over 100,000 motivated uh, people, young people from 10 Southeast Asian countries, all of whom are doing some kind of work in their own communities and now increasingly across borders, harnessing the tremendous idealism and the tremendous ambition of those young people and showing them how a society like America's deals with our own problems and how we can help. Uh, I think that was another example of um, you know, a major initiative that indirectly but meaningfully supported the, the values agenda. Hmm. But one of the other things that you pushed was internet freedom, especially mm-hmm. after 2010. Secretary Clinton made it a, a right. really sort of big piece of it. And that, that piece of it, of course, went directly at, at China and its notions of what it needs to do to maintain social stability. What was your thinking on that? I mean, at that point, you had already uh, gone to state and you were there as assistant secretary. Uh, I don't know how involved you were with, with those initiatives and uh, what the thought process was, but I watched that unfold and I watched, I think it was, it was interesting, especially with the Google pullout, to see how reaction, which was initially, you know, very broadly in favor of Google, people were having conversations around internet censorship. People who normally either didn't know or didn't care were, were talking about it. But uh, again, this this the timing of it when Secretary Clinton gave this speech only nine days after the Google announcement on January 12th. The speech came on the 21st, and suddenly everyone thought, look, this is this is not coincidental. She name-checks Google. She name-checks this, this particular thing. I want my internet freedom as much as the next guy, but I don't need the United States to deliver it to me. I mean, even one of the more, more notable Chinese, let's call him a, a dissident, okay? His name is Michael Ant. His congressional testimony started with, the Chinese people are not a doll that you can dress up. I mean, we're going to, you know, we don't need you to come in with your technological solutions to try to free our internet. Thank you, but uh, this is our, our, our problem. And this is how a lot of people sort of saw it. 
I think, again, something got messed up in the messaging. I think it may have been about the maybe innocent enough assertion that you need a certain amount of, of, of free inquiry in order to have a truly innovative entrepreneurial ecosystem, but it turned into something else. Well, I will concede that the problem of restrictions on the Internet is China's problem. Mm-hmm. But it's not China's problem alone because uh, we sh- should not be willing to live in a 21st century world in which cyberspace is bifurcated. Well, in which cyberspace is uh, delineated and, and portioned off by virtual national barriers in a domain that is truly shared. This notion that uh, you can erect sovereign barriers against ideas, against words, against knowledge uh, as a mechanism of uh, political and social control uh, is troubling, I think, to uh, most Americans. I think it's troubling to most human beings. So I think it's right and proper that whether it's Hillary Clinton or any other U.S. official, that the United States as a nation and as a government uh, speaks out in favor of Internet freedoms, just as we speak out in favor of freedom of speech. It's particularly in this dawning digital era, it's hugely important that craven or uh, political interests not serve as barriers to the advancement of human knowledge and the advancement of human dignity. One could make the argument, though, that it's particularly in this era when uh, these devices are so powerful and the information is so copious that it becomes even more dangerous if you use sort of the metaphor of a, a floodgate. In 1791, when we ratified the First Amendment to the Constitution, you know, information traveled at the speed of a galloping horse. It was written often in quill pen. There were the occasional, you know, Ben Franklin had a printing press. A few other people in New England had printing presses, but generally it was written and carried around by horseback. We we had 230 years to sort of get used to it before anything remotely digital was upon us. China never had that. They they entered the digital age when suddenly what's behind their floodgate is 800 million people, all with these devices, capable of sending not just text, not just voices, or but but high definition video around the world practically instantaneously i think it's it's more to wrestle with right well, it's there's you get no argument from me that there are and have to be boundaries and limits to freedoms freedoms are not absolute in human society but it would be far too long a jump to uh, go from there to unacceptance of the uh, use of censorship tools and various blockages i'm not sure what else there is though to control information right well uh governments have responsibilities and rights they have responsibilities to protect their citizens and they have the rights to uh, the right to decide where to draw the line in terms of uh, those security measures but the point that i think you will hear consistently from uh, U.S. uh, officials as well as from 
the international community is that our goal should be to try to protect the freedoms and the rights of our citizens. And with this amazing and powerful set of tools entering into society and entering into human life, uh, we have to guard against those who, for repressive and authoritarian reasons, are going to try to interfere with and obstruct the progression of uh, knowledge, the progression of uh, human discourse. That's not the world that uh, certainly I want to live in. Nor I, but uh, I grew up in this world where things things are very different. There are a lot of things that I can very much take for granted uh, that are sort of in the political cultural DNA of, of the American. It's, anyway, uh, we're, we're getting off topic here. What I, I really wanted to ask you about, this is something that we talk about an awful lot on the show and something that is a question that I've been sort of puzzling over for, for you know the, the, the better part of the last 10 years. And that is uh, about the illiberal turn that China appears to have taken after 2008-2009. This involved a lot of things. It's the end of what you, you've called, I think, very cleverly, hide and bide, tao guang yang hui, that, that policy of um, you know hiding your power and biding your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was you know this period of deepening suspicion of, of hostile designs by foreign powers that we've, we've been talking about, especially the U.S. It's been a, you know, it was a, a period where we started to see more fanning up of, of nativist or nat- nationalist sentiments, often very ugly. We, we've seen, you know, more regional assertiveness, especially say, in the South China Sea. Uh, you know, and this all started taking sh- clear shape, again, while you were, were in office, first at the NSC and then uh, during the entire time at State. So let's spend some time talking about your understanding of why this happened. What, what's your analysis of why this illiberal turn took place? What, what do you identify as the key drivers? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first let's remember that the illiberal turn took place uh, incrementally in an iterative way over time. So it wasn't instantly clear that, okay, hey, uh, China has turned a corner, although in retrospect uh, becomes a lot more visible. And there's always been a very heavy component of insecurity uh, in the way that the authoritarian Chinese Communist Party has operated. And uh, there's also been a certain component of, shall we say, uh, if not arrogance, at least a lack of humility as leaders remembered the glory of the Chinese empire and fretted the century of humiliation. That's, I think, a big part of the China dream. And it's not unique to China, frankly. Uh, We're experiencing a lot of nationalism and America firstism uh, in our country at this particular time. I thought when I started in the, in the NSC working with Jeff Bader and then Tom Donilon, it felt as if the impact of the 2008 financial crisis had uh, sent a pulse through Chinese thinking. Uh, and that sort of pulse seemed to dispel the long-held notion that there was something to respect and to perhaps imitate in the Western economic model. I think that experience did a lot to discredit the notion that China had 
to learn and China would be wise to conform to much of the U.S.-led Bretton Woods uh, system. I also know from the meetings that I attended, including meetings uh, early on with then Vice President uh, Xi Jinping, that the Arab Spring had a huge impact on the thinking of Chinese leaders. The Egypt experience, uh, for one, but then more broadly in in northeast in uh, North Africa and the Middle East, and before that, even really with with Tehran in two thousand nine. That seems to be sort of that proto-Arab Spring uh, mm-hmm. after Ahmadinejad's re-election, yeah. the Green yeah. Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I know that the Chinese Communist Party uh, was particularly struck at the the fragility that the various Ba'athist parties in the in that region showed. And something that I heard uh, from them at the time was, "We, the the Chinese Communist Party." can't afford to make those mistakes. We can't lose the support of the people and we can't let a situation spiral out of control in a way that could generate disunity. They very much saw disunity as as the biggest threat to China. And therefore, what follows from that is that China will always need a strong hand at the tiller. Uh, There will always need to be a strong central power in China. And it's not a surprise that they convince themselves that it must be the Communist Party providing that hand. And that if China's natural state is entropy, and if it's surrounded by a world that is arguably hostile to China and would like to pick China apart, it starts seeing color revolutions you know, in every corner. And what that seems to have led to is a perpetual crisis, a crisis of legitimacy in a way, because that system doesn't have the replenishment of legitimacy that comes with elections, but also a a crisis of control. And it seemed to me that I was seeing an uptick in tightening of authoritarian controls as part of an effort to compensate for what might have looked within the party as indecisive leadership by Hu Jintao. Right, the collective leadership. Right, right. That, that that was uh, kind of either a luxury that they could no longer afford or perhaps it was um, the result of complacency on the part of uh, the party. And they had in front of them examples of complacent uh, parties in the Middle East that were easily and quickly overthrown. I think so, a lot of us were mm-hmm. eager to believe that during the Hu and Wen period it was collective by design when perhaps it was actually collective because it couldn't be other, any other way. There were too many actors with their own entrenched interest groups and quite powerful as we saw by 2012. Well, I, I, my guess would be that it's a little bit of both. I mean, certainly after Mao Zedong and Deng, there was a widespread view that Deng articulated that it was important to distribute power among the leadership. But certainly by the time of the last year or two of Hu Jintao, it was obvious that the consensus had shifted in the direction of finding a strong unitary leader who could whip the party into shape. Now, 
I suspect that the leadership, the elders may have gotten more than they bargained for in Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. Uh, The anti-corruption campaign was seen by virtually all analysts at the beginning of Xi's tenure as, you know, taking a broom and conducting a house cleaning. I'm not familiar with very many people who did foresee at that point, including senior Chinese people that I spoke to, that the anti-corruption campaign would be a permanent undertaking, that it would be that much of an integral part of the overall governance strategy and mechanism. But along with the uh, strengthening of the party control through the anti-corruption campaign, which had the sort of the, the dual benefit of demonstrating to the people that there was zero tolerance or low tolerance for corruption, that the party was getting its act together, and also eliminating people who were not, shall we say, with the program. Right. There was also uh, an accompanying strengthening of domestic security controls to a fairly extraordinary extent. And what we're seeing now with the application of uh, AI and machine learning and all kinds of, you know, next generation technology behind even uh, DNA security control. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's what I call uh, big brother meets big data. <laughs> uh, it's uh, got... Techno-authoritarianism is what we're... <laughs> the, 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 uh, okay. the term of art these days, right? All right. But um, like techno music, it starts wearing at you pretty quick. Well, even less less quickly than techno music does, but... Right. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, time for that highlights reel. I think that it's it's a, a good time to... I mean, you, you've talked about some of the things, and interesting things happened on, on your watch. Uh, you know, you were a major shaper of U.S. policy in East Asia for, for quite a number of years. Let's include, you know, the very good things. We, we've enumerated some of those, like like the climate deal, obviously. But, but it was also a very challenging time, you know. The financial crisis, of course, it overshadowed an awful lot of things. It sort of pulled the, the soapbox out from under us, and we weren't able to, to lecture quite so well. But uh, there were events that came out of absolutely nowhere. Uh, things like the Wang Lijun scandal, oh, and he showed up in Chengdu. Mm. Uh, Chen Guangcheng's defection. Uh, these are all things that happened uh, during your time. A very uh, interesting times you did live through, indeed. Can you hit some of the highlights for us? Well, um, look, I, I mean, as I said at the outset, we tried to approach the relationship with China as a component of our overall Asia strategy. And I think that put us in a stronger position to deal on a bilateral basis directly with China. And we thought of our engagement with China not as a strict zero-sum game uh, with them, because wherever we found it possible to work together with them, we did. So in the case of Chang Guangzhou, which came up at an amazingly inopportune moment. Right before Secretary Clinton came, right? Exactly. uh, And was sort of the, the kind of uh, incident in which a, a passionate political actor, even a zealot, is perfectly willing to put uh, the big geostrategic interests at risk to advance something that they believe in. That's the sort of incident that can go very, very badly wrong. Uh, so I think that 
in the end, over time, the fact that uh, we were able to uh, patiently and painstakingly find a way to thread those various needles and to get John, not just bundle him out of the country, but to get the Chinese to find a way to allow him to go. Um, I I thought it was brilliant. I thought, I mean, I think there were a lot of us who, uh, even without, you know, reading the TikTok that you guys provided, I thought it was pretty brilliantly done. Well, uh, it certainly uh, was an endorsement and a validation, I think, of the deliberate engagement strategy. Another example is the cyber agreement. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we reached again coming at a very inopportune time with a big spoiler in the in the with in the, in the person of Edward Snowden right before Sunnylands, and you still managed to do that cyber agreement afterward. Well, we did battle uh, at every level with the Chinese over their intolerable and objectionable use of uh, cyber means to steal. Industrial uh, secrets, primarily. Yeah, to steal economic information. And Again, then to not take... an easy sell, right? I mean, there were not a lot of people who, who saw your distinction between okay spying, that is spying on you know defense and, uh, and uh, on counterespionage. That's all okay. You can go after .gov and .mil, but when you start going after .com, that becomes a problem, right? Uh, most people outside of, of the United States just didn't, didn't buy that I, that distinction. Well, I used to say, all's fair in love, war, and espionage. Uh, <laughs> but our point was that we can set aside a discussion about what our militaries do to each other or what our intelligence services do to each other. But we have to address issues that go right to the heart of intellectual property. And the fact that the Chinese state was sponsoring, supporting, and protecting Chinese actors who were deliberately stealing commercial U.S. information and then transferring that information to state-owned enterprises and Chinese businesses to commercialize the technology that they had stolen was not fundamentally different than not a knockoff you know, Gucci bag, but vastly more dangerous and more consequential. And the president raised this with Xi Jinping again and again. Xi Jinping insisted that, no, no, there's no such thing. We don't do this, etc. We really couldn't make any headway at all. But we persevered and we used the Chinese aversion to uh, Public shaming. Public shaming and, frankly, uh, judicial action. The Chinese saw that we were on the verge of taking legal action and designating, and and we did, in fact, indict uh, three members of, or however many members of 3PLA. And there was more coming, including retaliatory and reciprocal measures that uh, would create a real problem for China. But rather than conducting a big public j'accuse and rather than uh, presenting the Chinese with the fait accompli of, uh, you know, a slap across. Two French words, right? <laughs> I'm showing my liberal roots. Yeah. Uh, we 
uh, instead warned the Chinese directly and told them and showed them that we wanted to uh, find a way forward. And in particularly because this came to a head in the weeks before Xi Jinping was scheduled to make a state visit to Washington. It created a huge incentive for the Chinese side to right. look for a compromise. And uh, they sent their security czar to Washington. I remember it well. And it was clear to me that he had orders not to come back without some sort of a solution. And it just goes to show that when the Chinese want to find a way forward, when they want to make a compromise, they're you know eminently capable of making uh, a good deal that includes, in that case, some pretty significant concessions. And you think there was follow through? You think that there was appreciable decline in the number of industrial related espionage? I, I do. I think that it had a material impact on how the Chinese government treated and dealt with these hackers. I won't say that in one fell swoop it solved all of our cyber problems. Nothing, uh, Nothing could close. be further than the yeah. truth. But it did engineer a positive path out of what was otherwise uh, brewing to be a uh, a headlong collision that wouldn't have ended uh, happily for either side. There are a number of other areas where we forged a degree of cooperation that was, I think, extremely valuable. One example has to do with the Ebola crisis in Mm, West Africa and Liberia, where when you think about what an airborne infectious disease would do. Now, Ebola is only transmitted through bodily fluids, but if you think about what an airborne infectious disease would do in Asia, then you're scared because even Ebola moved at a, you know, a sharp vector with incredible speed and was more or less all that the world could do to put a halt and to finally conquer it. The risk to Asia is very profound. And unless the world begins putting into place the infrastructure of global health, whereby we can anticipate and stem or at least respond to new pandemics, we could be looking like a B-movie pretty soon. So what we did was to not simply deploy all of our military medical expertise to West Africa, but we went to the Chinese and said, you want to help, you want to be respected as an important contributor. Uh, You have a lot of things that you can offer, you know, medicines and syringes and tents and blankets and so on. Why don't we link arms? Why don't we combine our efforts? And the U.S. side and the U.S. military will provide the lift, will provide the medical military expertise, will provide these protective units and so on and so forth. And you Chinese tell us what sorts of things you can offer. You have doctors, etc. Let's uh, embed your team in the U.S. effort. And in doing so, we will allow you to gain experience in a degree of expeditionary medicine that you've never had before. So this was not the colonial, you know, paternalistic white America telling the, you know, the junior partner China what to do. 
This instead was the U.S. in addressing a crisis far from both of our shores, finding a way to make this both a collaborative exercise as well as a learning exercise, because further down the road, there will be a time when, unless China has the capabilities to combat a sudden health crisis, then it will spill over across America's borders and Europe's borders and, and uh, the rest of the world. So I feel like even though that was a relatively small event and people file it under E for Ebola, hmm. it really marked a transformation in the way that the United States and China not only worked together, but also thought about common projects to protect Mother Earth. These are great examples. I'm going to file them under what to read when I'm in a foul mood about U.S.-China relations. So, uh, let's talk about something maybe perhaps a little less pleasant, uh, which is AIIB and the Obama administration's response to it. That approach is something you know I've heard no one come out and defend, really. Can you tell our, our listeners what the thinking was? within the Obama administration and what its posture sure. uh, was toward AIB. What was actually communicated to our allies? I, I'm not, we're not clear on that. I mean, we, mm-hmm. there's a version that I, I hear that I've heard. It, it doesn't make the administration sound good, but I'd love to hear it from you directly. Well, when we initially started hearing of Chinese plans for uh, uh, Asian Infrastructure Bank, uh, details were notoriously sparse. And it sure sounded to me and to my colleagues and counterparts in a number of Western countries as if China was creating a new instrument of Chinese national power, basically creating the China Development Bank, but calling it Asian and, uh, and inviting, or in some cases, kind of muscling others to, to join up. And it seemed as if it was uh, kind of uh, pushback or payback against the reluctance of the U.S. to uh, support the expansion of China's voting rights in the IMF. It sounded like it was pushback against uh, the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, where Japan has had an outsized influence. And heaven knows there's a strong case to be made uh, that China had reason to complain on both of those counts and that the United States could have and should have been much more activist in uh, trying to create space for China and these uh, multilateral institutions, setting aside for a moment the fact there was no way that Congress was right. uh, and that was the obstacle. That. But Early on in in the time of the AIB uh, conception, it was all label and no content, no substance. And what we were seeing and hearing was that China was asking governments to buy what was a pig and a poke, to sign on the dotted line with the assurance that all that white space on the contract above the signature would be filled in in due course. Hmm. And... The position that we took was, look, the world already has a number of multilateral development banks. The world sure as hell needs more money for infrastructure, including and particularly in Asia. 
well, if sorry, if China is going to throw a whole lot of money behind the, the laudable objective of promoting infrastructure development in Asia, why doesn't it use the ADB? Why doesn't it use you know the World Bank? Uh, why doesn't it use some of the existing mechanisms that are proven institutions? And if China instead is going to create not a national bank but an international development bank. The starting point for any new multilateral banking institution had better be the high watermark in terms of standards and operations that have been achieved over the last 70 years by the existing multilateral banks. And so what I said to my counterparts was, don't be in such a hurry to sign on that bottom line. You have the maximum leverage uh, with China to try to influence them to design and to shape the AIIB to your liking, to, to meet uh, high standards while China is soliciting your agreement. They will be very happy to announce that 50 countries, 80 countries have joined. Before you give that away, don't you want to get some answers to the questions about governance, the questions about uh, um, you know, supervision, uh, the, the questions about transparency? Now, would they not have asked for these things? I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine. It was that a Germany mix. Just it was a mix. Some, in there some and signed a blank document. It was a mix. You know, don't forget there was a, a sort of a run on the bank. There was. A, great deal of China euphoria uh, at work. This was the era of, you know, Cameron's golden golden age right. and so on. Uh, so there was also what I diagnosed as a not inconsiderable amount of naivete uh, going around. But my, my message, and I think it was a message that others in the U.S. government sought to convey, was if you're going to go along with this, the notion that you sign up now and in due course you'll have influence from within is a debatable proposition. You, you really do want to ask the tough questions and to put some pressure on the Chinese to give you credible answers on across the spectrum of things like transparency, uh, environmental standards, and so on. Don't let them create a bank that isn't at least as good as the multilateral development banks that already exist. That was our message. And in the end, they seem to have either heeded it or would have done it on their own. Well, exactly. I mean, I, and I think that is the, uh, the reassuring uh, point, which is I'm not claiming credit for having squeezed uh, the Chinese kicking and screaming against their will and better judgment to have created a, a, a respectable, if not admirable, institution, the AIB. They did it. And yes, uh, they deserve credit for that. And I believe that uh, some combination of the pressure from within and the pressure from without added to that it's kind of moot point as to whether or not it would have happened otherwise. But I will make two points. One, I don't think that you can find on the record anything that a senior U.S. government official said about AIIB that translates into, you know, don't do it, don't join, bad doggy, we oppose. Now, so, well, there was never a case... You would characterize it more as sort of 
let's take a beat here and think about this and, and, you know, use this moment where you have maximum leverage. That's, that's what you said. That was certainly, that's, uh, that was certainly my, okay. and that's what my you colleagues Jack talking Lulu points. And, okay. Yeah. But the, the second point I would make is that let's not be too premature in our celebration of AIIB as sort of the, the new triumph of international development because it's very, very young and it's very, very small. You know, AIIB has zero Belt and Road projects in right. its funding stream, for example. And I don't, I don't mean that as criticism or to demean it, but it is absolutely tiny compared to the national Chinese banks like the China Development Bank or the Agricultural Bank, et cetera, which are funding projects around the world that have uh, serious shortcomings in terms of labor, in terms of environmental standards, in terms of debt sustainability, and so on. So AIB is, in many respects, the model uh, to which uh, we all hope that the big Chinese development banks and agricultural banks will evolve. Aspire, right. Yeah. Uh, let's jump up now to the present um, in the, the time that we have left. Let's talk about what's going on today. We, we live in a time, clearly, of, of mounting American anxiety over China. Uh, Trump has even suggested recently and has had his NSC staffers going out and pushing the idea that China has been meddling in the American electoral process. Uh, there are a handful of people in the media who seem to have made a career of raising alarms over China here in the U.S., and obviously they're striking a chord with at least some Americans. What do you see as the big drivers of anxiety here in the U.S., and how would you separate legitimate causes for concern from irrational, unfounded anxieties? Yeah, that's a great question. Because um, we're seeing what's almost a perfect storm in which the accumulated frustration and unhappiness among so many different elements of U.S. society and so many different stakeholders that traditionally have supported the U.S.-China relationship, traditionally been friends, and, right. right, and and academics and think mm. tanks and journalists, uh, you know, businessmen, farmers, politicians, you know, there's just so much frustration with problematic Chinese policies and behavior, with the treatment that so many foreign institutions, <laughs> individuals uh, encounter in China. And such a strong sense that it's uh, getting worse quickly and that there are so many unfair features in the way that China is uh, dealing with us and with them, that there's you know mounting anger and a diminished willingness to stand up and to speak up in defense of engagement and in defense of the U.S.-China relationship. So... While this is all happening, we're encountering the unprecedented vortex of the Trump uh, phenomenon. Right. And this is a phenomenon of xenophobia. It's a phenomenon of finger pointing, of blame. And I'm, I'll tell you, Kaiser, I'm increasingly worried that it's a phenomenon of, of racism, of uh, yellow peril. And yes. we see uh, a reciprocal hardening in positions on both the uh, U.S. and the China uh, side of the equation. We're branding each other as an enemy 
And it's no secret that when you treat somebody like an enemy, sooner or later you're going to wind up with an enemy. That's right. Um, so we're, we're locked into this spiral, and it, you know, well, the Kaiser, bad the, treatment the, gets begets the, bad treatment. Yeah, yeah, and I think what we don't know now is whether this is a spiral, whether we're in some kind of death spiral, or whether it's the swing of the pendulum. And it makes a big difference. It's been a long swing this way. That's that's what, and it feels like a, a severe swing. I mean, we've, we've been in bad positions before. After 1989, after June 4th, things were, were grim. I mean, it was hard for me to have imagined the U.S. and China ever sort of recovering from that. But then China wasn't a sort of a multi-dimensional peer. It wasn't sort of threatening to us. It certainly wasn't threatening to eat our lunch in terms of the technology. It wasn't the other AI superpower. It wasn't, you know, a, a, a country that uh, had a trillion dollars of, of our T-notes. There's a, there's a lot of, of, of things that have changed in the last 30 years. How do you how do we get out of this? What what's the way out of this nosedive? Um, what, what what do you think are some easier ways that we can start to rebuild trust? Well, I wouldn't put it uh, strictly in terms of rebuilding trust, but I mean, at the risk of dipping into the drawer full of adages and and idioms, I'd say that sort of the beginning of wisdom is to differentiate between the things that we may be able to control and the things that we probably can't control. Our own behavior is something that we have some control over. Mm-hmm. And the notion that um, shunning China and decoupling from China and vilifying China um, and obstructing China is going to produce a, a an outcome that benefits us is ludicrous. That's right. It doesn't hold up to even elementary scrutiny. That, that won't work. I used to work, among other people, for Rich Armitage, mm-hmm. who, as the former Deputy Secretary of State. And um, among his great sayings was the simple injunction, uh, the first rule when you find yourself deep in a hole is stop digging. Mm-hmm. And so I think, Kaiser, that, uh, you know, the the way that I'd answer the what are we doing now question really in the first instance is uh, to stop digging and to alter the way that we think uh, about China. You know, here too, I don't happen to be a Christian, but I'll embrace the, the Christian precept Hate the sin, not the sinner. We're, we've got <laughs> to differentiate between China and Chinese behavior, between the Chinese people and the Chinese nation and the actions of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. We can and should deal in a, in a tough, principled, unyielding way with the behavior by China that we find objectionable. Yeah, we should stand our ground. And by the way, not alone. It is utterly counterproductive for the United States to be taking pot shots at every one of our allies. That's right. At a moment when they all share many of the concerns about certain 
unacceptable and anti-social behavior on China's part. But we also have to be really vigilant not to allow ourselves to tolerate spillover from our complaints about certain policies and intellectual property theft and forced tech transfer and lack of access and uh, disregard for rule of law or for civil rights and let that color an overall attitude towards uh, China, towards the Chinese people, or worrisomely towards the Chinese diaspora. Now, the, I think the Chinese government aren't doing themselves any favors when they try to promulgate the notion that uh, people... They lay claim to the diaspora. Exactly. Sort of, right? That to be an but, ethnic you know, this Chinese is, this is, is to this be is a, Chinese. a vestige of an old idea where the borders of, of China never contained this sort of notion of Chineseness, unfortunately. This is... We were talking the other day, and uh, you talked about how the U.S. is perceived in the region and how other actors are looking at Trump's very erratic behavior and their confidence level in America is is erratic as the president's behavior is erratic. And it, it, it isn't uh, something that we can solidly count on anymore. And they need to look at contingencies. And this is not good for American power in the region, right? One, one actor that is certainly looking at contingencies is Japan. I... Uh, noticed that recently September 18th passed kind of unremarked on in the Chinese media. There was very little, uh, you know, anti-Japanese vitriol as there usually is. There wasn't any, or very, very little. I looked for it. It's We're seeing a real rapprochement, and I, mean, I do believe that this is in large part Trump's doing. Well, I think uh, Kaiser would be a little premature to describe what's happening between Beijing and Tokyo as real rapprochement. Okay. And I also, but it's a cool, forgive me, to... forgive me for being cynical, but uh, the Chinese system can dial up and dial down the, right. the, the public vitriol and the, the received memory of, you know, historical crimes. Nothing cynical there at all. To, to suit its purposes. My favorite, I always, always said they'd stand over the, fire pit of anti-Japanese nationalism with a fan in one hand and a fire hose in the other. <laughs> That's uh, my, my friend. That's a point. gripping image. But I think more broadly, uh, your point is very well taken, namely that there's an impact on the region and on America's long-term standing from a period in which real doubts are sown about America's reliability and dependability. And to go from Uh, one presidential administration to another that is uh, vocally, affirmatively determined to reverse every single policy decision is going to raise real questions in the minds of our partners about uh, the sanctity of any agreement and what they can expect, you know, four years after any given election. So when you ask yourself, well, you know, what if what if Hillary Clinton ran in 2020 and won, or Michelle Obama was our next president? Would would the meter get set back to where it was before? I think the common sense answer is simply no, because uh, partners and adversaries uh, make adjustments and adapt to what they see in terms of American behavior they make judgments about American staying power, resolve, and reliability. 
And based on those judgments, they enter into new arrangements, new agreements. You know, the TPP-11, for example, is mm-hmm. a major consequential trade block in East Asia and the Pacific that does not include the United States. Uh, the members of that trade block are not going to suddenly relinquish their you know, zero-tariff advantages when a new administration takes office in the United States. Uh, the cooperative partnerships... If we ask very nicely, maybe. <laughs> well, we would be asking for permission to join their agreement, not simply uh, taking our rightful place of pride mm-hmm. uh, in an agreement that we largely designed. And so that's a nice the terms, <laughs> Well, the terms under which... Uh, they would let us join would be uh, markedly inferior to the original. And the bigger point, though, Kaiser, is that there are a lot of adjustments, coping mechanisms that have been developed. Now, I'm not saying that the uh, thawing of relations between uh, Tokyo and Beijing is a bad thing. Not at all. And it's long overdue since... 2012, the the Chinese have behaved uh, abominably. But if the driver for that is a calculus in Tokyo that, you know, all things being equal, uh, we really can't afford to be as estranged uh, from China as we had been. We really can't afford to speak out as clearly and as firmly as we have. We need to consider how to go along to get along. If that can enter into the calculus of a country as large and wealthy and strong as and, and faithful to the alliance with the U.S. as Japan, well, what about Indonesia? You know, what about Malaysia? What about Thailand? Uh, and look, even a country like India, uh, which has a, you know, a very serious residual border dispute with China, which in many respects sees and regards China as a strategic rival, who looks with great concern at the uh, inroads made in the Belt and Road uh, Initiative that, in, China, in India's view, encroach in uh, historical sphere of sure. influence. CPEC, Gwadar Port, yeah. Yeah, so even also, even yeah. India, you'll see when you you know you look at the the Kika or the BRICS summit mm-hmm. is finding ways to accommodate, to adjust. Now, we all want to get along, but the extent to which countries are shifting their threshold of tolerance for uh, threatening or problematic behavior by China as a function of the diminution of their confidence that the United States will remain uh, strongly engaged in the region and, more importantly, will put values first, we'll put universal rights first, we'll put international law first, we'll put the the best interests of the, the group and the alliance first, and instead think they're dealing with a selfish America, an America in which America first can mean America alone, where we're retrenching within our own borders. In that circumstance, in that environment, we're going to be 
in a strategically, economically, diplomatically, politically weakened position. And that's not a happy thought. There are a dozen other questions that I'd love to ask you, but I, I think I've already imposed very, very heavily on your time. So, Danny Russell, thank you so much for taking that time to speak with me. Uh, it's been just fantastic uh, listening to your ideas. And may you long continue to play a role in guiding American policy in Asia. Pivot two. <laughs> thank you. Uh, before I pack up here, let's make uh, quick recommendations. Uh, and before I, we do that, I, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you want to show your support for SubChina and for Seneca and the other podcasts that we've added to our network, uh, we'd love it if you would sign up for our premium access service, which gives you discounts and free admission to our live shows and other events, and ad-free version of the Seneca podcast and lots of other goodies. Uh, the other thing you can do, of course, is leave us a positive review on the iTunes store. It really helps and uh, helps people to discover the show. Now, uh, on to recommendations. Uh, Danny, please, after you. Well, thanks, Kaiser. I don't actually have a, a book or a, a Netflix uh, okay. movie to, to recommend, but I will make a, a plea for public service because mm. I'm somebody who, in frustration with uh, my own society and my own government, decided that if it bothered me a lot that Americans didn't seem to give a hoot about the rest of the world and weren't learning foreign languages and were content to let other people do all the the hard work, that I better do something about it. And in my case, I joined the Foreign Service and had a wonderful 33-year career. And I highly, highly recommend the Foreign Service, but I think equally rewarding are uh, roles in non-governmental organizations and, and other institutions. But my simple point is, uh, my recommendation is don't treat foreign affairs like it's a spectator sport, because it's not. Right. It's your world. It's your country. Do something about it. Get in there. Get your hands dirty. Own it. That is an excellent and insp- inspiring recommendation. I think that uh, a lot of our listeners are people who have written to me and talked about, you know, I'm interested in taking the foreign service exam. I'm t- interested in... Uh, I've heard there's a hiring freeze. What do you? <laughs> but uh, teach for America. Do 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 something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am gonna get out there and register voters in some rural counties of of uh, North Carolina this weekend. That's um, going to be my pre midterm public service here. Good. Um, my own recommendation. I'm reading a memoir right now called Educated uh, by a young woman named Tara Westover, uh, who is raised in this. Uh, sort of survivalist Mormon family on a mountainside in Idaho. A fascinating book. I read the review in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a great. It's everything that the review says. I mean, she's just a phenomenal. I mean, not only is she educated, but she's turned herself into a beautiful writer. I mean, really has a a gift as a writer. Uh, very compelling, real page turner. Really good book, and uh, it's it's. It's interesting. I think there are people who would who would compare it to hillbillyology in a way. Uh, I think that she is a much more compelling character with more important things to say, really, than, than J.D. Vance was. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Danny. That was just a real pleasure. Great. And uh, I My hope pleasure. we can ask you the other dozen questions another time. Absolutely. Thank okay. you, Kaiser. 
The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz, New Voices, and our brand new one, China Econ Talk with Jordan Schneider. More shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.